What's everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Get in the Cashflow Game with K and K. Boy, boy, today I have to say I'm very excited. Um, it's kind of funny when you um, when you've watched somebody for a long time that you really, really respect. Uh, you respect their view. You respect just basically that their passion for things, and also just respect like the resume. And just the insight and how much I've learned by um, listening to and watching our next guest. Huge fan. Um, I believe Monsi might have been before the show or Crystal uh, threw me under the bus and said I was like a boy fan or something. Whatever they call it. Monsi's over here laughing. But no, I'm a big fan. Lots of lots of respect. Um, today we have on Danielle DiMartino Booth. And it's funny, a lot of you guys, I mentioned the name and you're like, who in the world is this person? So the good news is, is that for those of you that have never, ever heard of this person before, maybe never heard of the name, you might've seen her on TV. She's like on Fox and stuff like that all the time. Um, but if you take the time, listen to this podcast, um, which is only an hour, which wasn't enough. I could spend hours and hours with Danielle um, you need to go follow her and you need to go listen to a lot of her content because she's very smart and she's going to teach you a lot. So Danielle Martina Booth is the CEO and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence LLC. And honestly, she basically just has this crazy, crazy resume, super, super smart. She worked for the, she worked on wall street, uh, exited that, I think sold her book of business. Then she went and worked um, at the Federal Reserve. Yes, yeah, she worked at the Fed, where your buddy Jerome Powell works, and uh, for nine years. So she basically learned how the engine runs. And then she wrote a book after she left the Fed um, called Fed Up, an insider take on why, why basically the Federal Reserve is bad for America. So Danielle is like, she's like an economist. She knows about the Fed. She knows why they're probably making this move or that move. She literally lived and breathed that world for nine years. For a lot of us, it's odd. So that's why I follow her because right now, everybody is hyper-focused on the Fed. What are they going to do? What are they not going to do? What should they be doing? What are interest rates going to do? Up, down. She knows the economy like in and out, whether, you know, why it's moving so she really, really focuses on, and you'll notice a lot of people I bring on here, they focus on data. This isn't watching your local news where it's emotional and this and that. They literally study data and they watch the trends and they understand maybe before a market's going to change or this or that's going to happen just by what's happening. So I'm super, super excited to have her on today. We basically jumped in talking a little about the Fed, what they do, how they work, rates, the economy. Really, really just great conversation. I was super excited to have her on. Like I said, um, um, gave her, her, she gave us an hour of her time. So without further ado, let's jump in with Danielle. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. It is great to be here. I match your backdrop. <laughs> you <laughs> do. You do. I love it. Um, so as I was talking before, I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, I actually found you when Patrick Beck David, I think first interviewed you a while ago. And um, I was like, wow, who in the world is this lady? And I got to learn more about her. And then, it, you know, I come to realize that you kind of just talk 
the talk of what's going on on Fed and the government, the policies. And so um, I'm really excited to have you here today. Our audience is pretty much real estate investors. So they obviously care much about the market. They care much about rates and what's going on. And um, before we kind of jump in and to talk about the Fed and rates and all the good stuff, if you could kind of just um, let everybody know a little bit about you, your background, and kind of how you ended up here today. Sure. So I, I, my, my career has been something of a circuitous route, I like to say. I started off on Wall Street in the traditional sense at an investment bank. I was in sales and I dealt with uh, hedge funds and corporations wealthy individuals, the full gamut of, of, of clients that you would think of. And I was also a privy to private equity and its beginnings at DLJ, which had a merchant bank with, but before private equity was really a big thing. And certainly before private equity had a, a large presence in commercial real estate as it does today. So that was a very unique uh, spectrum through which to begin, uh, prison through which to begin my career I had gotten my second master's uh, at Columbia Journalism School. I had idealistic notions of, of retiring and writing for a newspaper. After I left Wall Street, that lasted for about 18 months or so before I landed at the Federal Reserve, where I became Richard Fisher's advisor on all things markets at the intersection of economic data. So I was there for about nine years inside the Federal Reserve. I'm the opposite of a bureaucrat. So that was an interesting journey, but it was a huge privilege to work for Richard. Neither of us were PhDs in economics. Both of us saw the world through uh, through the financial markets. We, we still do. And since then, I've come out and launched my own independent research firm, Quill Intelligence, as well as, as my own show on Valuetainment Entertainment called Down the Middle. And I try and have as many interesting and intelligent people on as possible to educate and further my, my mission of financial literacy so that everybody can understand cash flows and investing and that not be something that is sequestered off to a small cohort of individuals on Wall Street. Yeah. Some of your interviews, I have to watch back a couple times because people talk and languages are about things that I don't understand, but I know I need to understand. So I'm like, uh, what did Lacey Hunt or what did somebody just say? Because I need to back that up and understand what they're talking about. Yeah, if there's been one privilege, Lacey Hunt, a little bit of history, started at the Dallas Fed in 1969. So I started at the Dallas Fed in 1996. So just flip the numbers, the last two numbers uh, of the 1900s. Uh, but he and I share that in common. And I, I, I urge your, your viewers and your listeners to go on and listen to all of the Lacey Hunt interviews that I've done because they're about the, I mean, they're, they're better than getting an MBA. They're, they're truly amazing. Yeah, he is a wealth of knowledge and his perspective is something else. If you've never, I tell you, if you've never heard of him, you're just missing out on like so many things. And he's not on social media. So it's a, no. you've got to get him while you can. Yeah, exactly. Um, also too, is a little bit more about you. You also have four kids. Yeah, I guess I do. So <laughs> because um, my wife and I work together and I like to talk about that, how is it, how do you do all you done and raise four kids because to me, we have two and I'm like, how does somebody do that? Cause I want to learn more about that. So work from home was something that was the basis of my life after I left wall street. So I, I really didn't, you know, for the, for the moment that I was at the Dallas morning news, I didn't spend that much time uh, in the newsroom. And even when I was at the federal reserve, especially when I was at the federal reserve, because I wasn't 
kind of this nine to five type, you know, time punch card person. I've always also been able to have a lot of flexibility in terms of where I work. Unfortunately, that means that I work most oftentimes 24 seven. Uh, people say that I actually know what the Asian markets are doing when I'm sleeping. Uh, so but I've got, <laughs> I've got Bloomberg on in every, you know, every television in, in the house has typically got Bloomberg TV on in the background. My oldest is 17. It's interesting to see some of his college essays where he talks about being a, a young boy, you know, a toddler running around with CNBC on in the background. And it's, it's seeing some of the things that they remember. But you just you bob and you weave. You make sure that that your husband is a good is, is a good support structure. Hopefully you've got family around as, as well as other people to help when the time comes. If I put 120,000 miles in the last 12 months in the air. Um, but at the same time, you know, on, on a very personal level, you need to understand what those important moments are and where those important times are. And then just carve it out of your schedule and make sure that it's that you don't have any conflicts when it's really important for you to be there. I like that. Um, I have to ask, do your kids ask you about the economy? Oh, all the time. What are they like? What's that conversation like at home? Well, whenever, whenever there's anything in, like in the major media about China, they're always like, Ooh, mom, China. So <laughs> that first valuetainment um, video that kind of put me on the map when I said at the time, and this was at the very beginning of COVID, this is March after COVID had hit the United States, what I said at the time was that, you know, what China had unleashed on the world, whether it was intentional or not, was tantamount to an act of war because they didn't tell anybody about it for the first six, eight weeks it was running around the globe, which in and of itself was bad enough. Uh, so, you know, th they've grown up with the realization that there are a lot of risks to the United States economy and that China is one of those big risks. They know that they know about debt and deficits because I talk about them all the time. And, and you know, if they hear debt, I go, oh, mom, debt. So I mean, it's just hopefully I'm ingraining upon them certain aspects of life that 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 a lot of American children don't get because sadly, you know, financial literacy, these things are not part of the curriculum in American public schools today. And, and that's a shame. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Our kids are so young. They're two and three, but we're always trying to think of how we can help teach them about financial literacy. Like even the, the cash flow game by Robert Kiyosaki, we got that. And we're like trying to kind of just even learn about money, I think at a young age, because like Kenny said, for us, it's like ch speaking Chinese. And I think it's because it, th these were never things that were discussed in our households growing up. Yeah. I mean, my father, may he rest in peace. He taught economics and finance and, you know, hang, oh. hanging out with dad was like learning how to read the the, the second and third columns of the Wall Street Journal when I was a kid. I had no idea what I was reading, but I picked up the Wall Street Journal. I'm like, okay, this makes absolutely no sense. And then, you know, of course, later on in life, it was like my own second second uh, language. So um, I have to ask you this question and I guess dumb it down as much as you can because I know you can go in many directions with it. I know you can get deep with it, but somebody that sits in front of a TV puts on CNBC, Fox, whatever it is, and they hear feds are raising rates and central bank and this and that. And they're kind of like, what in the world does all this really mean? Can you kind of in your best words, paragraphs, dumb down the fed for us and the central bank and kind of how it works and like what's kind of going on right now with it? Well, so in the good old days, like at the turn of the century, 
you know, interest rates really mattered in the sense of they dictated what my grandmother would get on her certificates of deposit, which I guarantee you no millennial could tell you what a CD was. But interest rates dictated the, the rate that you got if you were setting your cash aside and how much that would compound. And compound and interest was a thing. And interest rates dictated what your mortgage rate was or what the rate on your car loan would be. So the Fed making moves one way or the other, uh, it was very instrumental in the, the decisions that you made. In a post-2008 world, when, the, when, when Ben Bernanke was chair of the Fed and he took borrowing rates down to what we call the zero bound, which is exactly what it is. Zero is a bound under, under which you get to negative, where Europeans and the Japanese have actually gone. But once you get to the zero bound, uh, interest rate policy is much less effective and it, it makes more headlines because the Fed has now had to use new tools. And instead of it just being the rate of interest that you're paying to borrow or the rate of interest that you're receiving to save, now it's what form of liquidity is the Fed injecting into the markets to kind of prop up the stock market and to keep companies borrowing more than they would if they actually had to worry about the cost of, ser of servicing their debt, but they don't. And the same thing applies to the United States government when the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at what we call artificially repressed, artificially low levels, then Uncle Sam gets to borrow with abandon as well. And that's why you hear people talk about the, you know, how dangerous it is that the United States is pushing $30 trillion in debt. And yet, really, since 2008, there has not been any price to pay because the Federal Reserve has become an institution that allows for and actually encourages uh, governments, individual households and corporations to take on and carry more debt than they otherwise would because it's so cheap to service that debt because interest rates are artificially low. Um, do you think the Fed works independent or do you think they're really influenced by politicians these days? Uh, so I think that, and I actually wrote a whole book about this called Fed Up, and yeah. I, I I saw it with my own two eyes, really, that, that Federal Reserve policy has been politicized for generations now. The last person who was a leader of the Fed who was not influenced by outsiders and really didn't care what Wall Street thought of what he did, all he was doing was safeguarding the economy, making sure that inflation didn't get out of hand. And that was Paul Volcker. So the last time we really had somebody uh, shepherding the U.S. economy at the Federal Reserve, completely independent of politicians and their will, was 1987. So a lot of people weren't even born then. And you know, after, after Greenspan came in, there was just a, a successive uh, number of leaders who were more and more malleable and influenceable, if you will, by politicians in order to keep monetary policy, what we call looser, easier than it should be uh, absent political influence. So the feds right now, they're, I mean, we keep bringing that up, but they're facing, what do you think their biggest problem is they're facing today? So in 1978, the Federal Reserve uh, its mandate, what it's supposed to do for the U.S. economy was doubled, so to speak. Uh, unemployment was very high at the time and inflation was rising at the time. And so 
Congress voted to change the original uh, Federal Reserve Act and added the employment mandate. So at the same time, the, the Federal Reserve is supposed to minimize inflationary pressures. It's supposed to maximize employment in the United States economy. These two, uh, these two directives, if you will, run in direct conflict with one another. And that's why the Federal Reserve has kept policy lower than it would otherwise in order to try and bring that unemployment rate down to where it did. In the post-pandemic, post-COVID world, the Federal Reserve was faced with something it had never seen before, and that was fiscal stimulus at an even bigger level, at, of an even greater magnitude than the Fed throwing trillions of dollars of quote unquote printed money. Uh, and that's really a misnomer, but let's just, let's just call it pumping trillions of dollars of liquidity into the market. At the same time, the, the US federal government was also directly depositing cash in terms of trillions of dollars into US households, bank accounts, the combination of that created tremendous levels of inflation. And uh, I'm sorry to say that the Federal Reserve chose its employment mandate in 2020 and in 2021 over its inflation mandate. And it let the proverbial horse out of the barn. And now the Federal Reserve is backpedaling at a very ex extremely fast rate, trying to Tighten policy, trying to pull this massive historic liquidity out of the markets without upsetting the stock market, which is always an interesting trick because the stock market lives and breathes on liquidity, uh, without upsetting because they're trying to, to, to contain inflation way after it's become out of control because it's now pushing 7%, which is a very, very onerous. Not for, I, I look at US households as being a, a barbell. They're the lowest income earners and they get all of the benefits of the social safety net, whether you're talking about the, the food stamp, the SNAP program or assistance most recently uh, announced with their heating bills over the winter. Um, all types of, there's 82, 83 programs that, that are specifically designed for the lowest income earners to capture them in the social safety net. And then Federal Reserve policy has, of course, we read about it all the time, benefit at that top 1%. So the people who, who have stocks and, and 401ks, they've benefited from Fed policy. The people who make the least, they've benefited most recently from a 25% increase on October the 1st, 2021, in what they receive every month in terms of food benefits. Americans in the middle, small business owners, they have been absolutely gutted by this inflation. They don't qualify for government assistance, nor do they want it. And they're not also part of this top echelon of elite who've benefited from Fed policy. These people who are in the middle also vote. And we call them the silent majority. And they tend to be moderate American voters. But as of late, because they are on the receiving end to the greatest proportion of this runaway inflation, they've become very vocal. And the politicians know it. So you actually have people like Joe Manchin of West Virginia coming out and saying, it's time for the Federal Reserve to tighten policy. To hear a politician say something like that is, is like hearing the Pope say, I'm going to go out and party until midnight every night. It, it's very <laughs> unusual to hear a yeah. politician say, gee, the Federal Reserve needs to tighten up policy because these things typically lead to recession and rising unemployment. But again, inflation has become out of hand especially for your middle income earner and small business owner. 
Yeah, I mean, just like, for example, just, you know, we do, uh, we're in real estate, so interest rates, just like conventional interest rates, let's go take those. They've gone up probably about a half a percent in the last week. And, um, you know, people, you know, before the end of the year, like, hey, you can get this rate now, it's half point higher. What, what happened? This doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, you're trying to explain to them, I mean, when things go up that fast, it just can't be good. So what, what, what solutions are there? Because in my opinion, if rates go up too fast and you have problems, then they got to bring them back down again because I feel like we do live in a rate environment because of all the debt. So what you're talking about is kind of the snowball effect. When it was 2018, 2019, the discussion being had was, gee, a 5% 30-year fixed mortgage rate would break the housing market. Right now, what we've seen is that uh, rate locks for purchases of residential homes, you know, they peaked about five or six months ago. And so we're now seeing that, at least on the residential side, that, that 4% 30-year conventional mortgage rates would break the housing market. So every time the Federal Reserve comes in with policies that, that, uh, that really influence and juice speculation through interest rate policy, it ends up creating a higher degree of speculation, whether you're talking about commercial real estate or residential real estate, meaning when interest rates start to come up again, you've got a lower threshold at which things start to crack. And on top of that, you also have a generation of, of home buyers, a generation of people who bought apartment buildings, I heard recently in Austin at 2% cap rates. You have this generation that's locked in. And in terms of American individuals, what would ever incentivize them to trade out of their, their 2.8 or 2.9 or 3% mortgage rate into a 3.5 or a 4% mortgage rate when they bought more home than they could afford to begin with? And that half, you know, half a percent, 75 basis points, three, three quarters of a, of a percentage point differential would mean they wouldn't be able to make their payments anymore. So the longer the Fed suppresses interest rates, the more speculative flows go into real estate and the more sensitive real estate becomes to the smallest move off of the lowest base in interest rates. And that makes Fed policy, making Fed policy, that much more difficult. The market is talking about three or four rate hikes in 2021. I want to see it. I want to see how that plays out in real estate and see if that can actually happen. Yeah, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think, do you think they'll actually do it? And if they do it, what would how would you what would you per, not predict but what do you see of an outcome if they actually rates keep rising like long term and then you do the hikes i mean that's kind of that's a lot well right now we you know the thing that i follow the most closely in terms of how far can the fed go and it's a really good gauge is the difference between the 2 year treasury yield and the 10 year treasury yield following that differential tells you basically how much wiggle room there is. If the difference between the two is one full percentage point, 100 basis points, well, then the Fed, and it stays that way, and this is the key, and it stays that way. It was 160 basis points a few months ago. So we've seen quite a bit of flattening in what we call the yield curve. As long as, as you maintain that differential between short and longer and maturity rates, well, then the Fed has enough room to lower interest rates. 
But once you arrive at the point where short rate interest yields, where short yields look to be surpassing that of long yields, in other words, what we call an inverted yield curve, which we spent most of 2009 worrying about. Oh my gosh, the yield curve is inverting. The world's coming to an end. Well, the reason we say the world is coming to an end is because that means that the Federal Reserve is at the end of its rope and it can no longer tighten policy. In fact, it has to flip uh, gears and start to ease policy. Now, the difference between 2019 and today is, of course, we have inflation. So that's why you hear so often, gee, it looks like the Fed has backed itself into a corner because it has one, it, it has, it, it gets to choose between one or another poor choices. But the Federal Reserve, I can never envision hiking interest rates, raising interest rates. Let's say we're in June of 2022 and that yield curve has inverted. There's no way that the Federal Reserve could raise interest rates into an inverted yield curve environment without actually acceding, conceding to the point that it was trying to induce recession in the United States. Well, I never really knew to look at those. So the, the two-year and the 10-year, that's really what you look at to kind of see what's going on. Okay, cool. And then, I mean, do you, does the government, you know, I'm just trying to think like people watching this, people go, to me, I feel like the government wants to make sure housing prices are up, your 401k is up, your stock portfolio looks up, you feel good, you're going to go spend the money, buy the TV, go here, travel, because that's 70% of GDP. Like, is when you're working at the Fed, is that really, is that a discussion? Is that a topic? Is that reality? Or is this just kind of like us out here thinking that's really how it is? Well, it's interesting you ask that question, because if you go back to... 2001, 2003, some of the things that Ben Bernanke, who was head of the Federal Reserve at the time, said was that the stock market channel was critical to the household balance sheet, to how households felt about their current financial standing. And so there is there is this theory, especially among Federal Reserve po policymakers, that the wealthier individuals feel the more their home is worth, the higher their home value, the higher the, the, the balance of their 401k, the more that they're going to feel like they can spend not just what they earn, but also take out credit card debt to spend more than what they earn because they're anticipating that their wealth is going to continue to grow. The key here is to see incomes rise at a faster pace, especially when inflation is rising. The key is to see incomes rising at a faster pace than inflation. And we're not really there yet. And getting there is also a treacherous path because you're talking about employers at this point having to raise wages and how much they can withstand in terms of their own profitability to raise the, the paychecks of their workers before they're no longer a profitable entity. So it, it's, a, it's a delicate balancing act and one that the Federal Reserve is paying very close attention to because of all of the types of inflation, whether it's the supply chain disruption we've all been reading about, and there's a backup at the California ports and the world is also ending, or it's, you know, the food, food inflation's up more than it's ever been. And that's terrible for, for you know, households when they're, when they're at the grocery store or filling up their gas tank. Wage inflation of all of the, the, of the flavors and stripes of inflation, that's the one that scares policymakers the most because it can set off a spiral of rising prices if companies are forced to raise wages 
and they they're not they don't have the ability to absorb that into their profit margins and that means they also have to continue to raise prices the more they have to raise wages so it becomes this this self-fulfilling prophecy of gee we're going to slam the economy into recession because we can't get inflation under control and the federal reserve is 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 really helpless to do anything about it wow now do you think that we're close to that, I feel like, you know, I don't watch all of the data the way that you do, but I feel like everywhere we look, we're seeing, you know, McDonald's is paying $20 an hour for people. And you know, all these companies are having to increase wages to get employees to come back to work. So it feels like that is starting to happen. Oh, we've certainly seen evidence of it. And, you know, one of the most interesting outfits that I follow, it's, 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 it's even remote in my world, but it's called UKG. And UKG, they, it's it's free data to the public. But what they track is, is what they track is the number of shifts that are being worked, regardless if it's a McDonald's shift or a Ford shift or a shift at McKinsey at the consulting firm. They they, they follow thirty five thousand U.S. companies of all sizes, and what they've seen is that permanent closures are north of twenty percent for companies with one hundred employees or fewer than one hundred employees. And yet closures are only up about 9%, this is post-pandemic, for the largest companies in the country. And what that reflects is, you know, the, it, it reflects the, the flex, the, the, the power, the pricing power that the biggest employers have in the wage market, in the labor market, compared to that which a smaller business owner really doesn't have. They can't go out and advertise, hey, we can pay $20 an hour when we used to pay eight or nine or $10 an hour uh, for somebody to bust tables or for somebody to, to be a waitress. We just simply can't afford it. And so they close. And, and that's what it comes down to when you're, when you're talking about the, the, the benefits and because American workers, you can argue have, have, have long been, uh, been paid less than what corporations should have been paying them, especially big corporations. A lot of it's been going into share buybacks and straight down to the bottom line and, and CEO pay and bonuses and, and private jets. So you can argue, and rightly so, that the American worker has been shut out for longer than needs to be the case. But the pendulum can swing too far, such that you're putting too many small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, uh, basically where they have to close shop because they don't have this kind of pricing power in the job market. So that these are the things that politicians and people at the Federal Reserve are worried about. And again, it's because the Fed waited too long in 2021 to pull back that enormous source of liquidity and support for the financial markets that favors the wealthiest that we've gotten to this point. So today, right now, we sit... Uh... January 2022. Um, I know I've listened to you and a lot of other people. I think um, people are scratching their heads going like, what's really going on? You know, because the Fed said one thing and I think they're changing their story because we can clearly see it. No, there's no inflation. Okay, there's inflation. It's transitory. Maybe it's here to stay. We should do something. And, and, and people are going, wait, I thought this is going to go slower, like the rates. And so I know you look at certain things, but I'm more looking at what's really going on with the economy. You know, there's all these different topics out there, but nobody's really talking about what's going on. Can you just go through like somebody like you, what are some of the things you look at? Like, I know you always talk about, you're looking at maybe what's going on with housing. You're looking at how many people are buying cars. 
you know, cons- whatever it is, what are you looking at to, in your point of view with all your experience to just basically get through all the BS to get down what's really going on? Yeah. So it's really difficult when you have to keep score between, you know, which entity is changing their narrative more often, the Federal Reserve or the CDC. It's just a strange world that we live in. And it's hard to see through the noise. And what what I look at is I look at the pre-pandemic trend line because the U.S. economy does grow. We do get college graduates every single May and June. The the labor force does grow by 125 to 150 individuals every single month. The, the, The U.S. labor force is growing as it ages. And so I look at the number of jobs, not just that have been lost and recuperated and recovered in a post-pandemic world, but what the trend line suggests where job creation should be right now had it stayed on that same pre-COVID path. And that puts us 7 million jobs under the water. That means that we've seen some scarring in the labor force and that there are more people who are not working than you would otherwise have had many programs that discouraged work not been put out there. And you're right when it comes to housing and you're right when it comes to, to car purchases. I'm going back to Lacey Hunt because he's kind of the godfather of economics. He's always said that there are two sectors that lead the economy into and out of recession, and that's car sales and home sales. And when they start to, to inflect, when you start to see these two markets turn over, then you, you're, you're, you're seeing the, the economy take a turn when car sales and home sales start to rise off their bottom. That's a sign that the economy is entering into an expansive mode. And in our lifetimes, we've seen expansions last twice since the turn of the century, twice, 10 years. And I think that that's what a lot of Americans are used to is, okay, we're in an expansion now. It's going to last a decade. And then you know, the, the last one that we came through prior to COVID, well, that one was more than 10 years in length. So, But What's confusing, I think, especially to people who are in their 30s and 40s right now, is that we've seen this kind of hyper-compressed business cycle, this economic cycle that's gone by so fast. You're like, wait, it's just been two years. How are we already, already talking about auto sales inflecting? How have auto sales been falling for seven or eight months if it's just a chip shortage issue? Hasn't anybody noticed that that, that that car prices have been hitting records for eight or nine months in a row? And don't car prices matter to the buyer, especially if they're buying with financing? And look at what, what home prices have done as well. You've seen you know, the, the entire 2002 to 2007 housing bubble inflate in the space of months in terms of home price appreciation. So even economists are really confused at the current backdrop because everything's happened so fast because the government has pumped so much money, again, directly into individual household accounts. 61 of the the 73 million children in America were covered by the child tax credit, and that was delivered in cash. So come January the 31st, a lot of families are going to be going to wherever you can get your tax refund the quickest and have no idea that that two or $3,000 tax refund that they've grown accustomed to isn't going to be there because they took so much cash in advance starting in July of 2021 in the form of that child tax credit. So 
This is why we're seeing what I, the, the term that I use constantly these days is compression, compression in the business cycle, compression in the economic cycle, and why we're seeing the market so hypersensitive to any move the Federal Reserve makes, because it doesn't matter that we're starting from a lower base. It matters that any sequential move up in terms of financial uh, uh, financial um, interest rates is going to take that much of, of a bigger bite out of the economy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I, I remember you saying that or somebody else too about people when they go get their check and they're not going to get it because especially that time of the year, as we all know, and the uh, you get your check, that's a big part. That's a big pot for the economy. That's when people go spend, they buy stuff, pay off credit cards, whatever it is. I mean, you know that better than anybody. That's right. It's they pay off, the, you know, whatever they spent on Christmas, they go, they pay off or, or maybe that's the down payment for the next car for the family. And that's where that cash is coming from. And again, I, I think that there's probably a high degree of unawareness among many U.S. households that that 550 plus, that 550 was the average U.S. household. You know, if you have four children for, for, for American families, that, that, was, that was an $1,100 check you were getting, maybe up to $1,200 if all of your children were young. But all of that cash was effectively pulled backwards in time, and it's not going to be there when they go to get their refunds. We've started to see the major media outlets report on this phenomena, but there's no way to go back in time and make those cash deposits into your checking account go away. Crazy. Um, inflation. I, it's like a 50-50. I watch 100 interviews, 50% say it's going to keep going, 50% say it's going to end or we're going to hit deflationary. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think right now that there are several sources of inflation that we're seeing come off their highs. We're seeing shipping rates come down, and that's going to be a big relief for U.S. manufacturers. Uh, we're seeing some of the clogging at the ports start to dissipate, which is a seasonal thing once you get through the holiday season. And so we're seeing inventories build back up. General Motors has added uh, production lines. They've added some overtime shifts over the weekend. So it's clear that the semiconductor shortage that's been plaguing the auto industry is, is, is beginning to see relief. So I would say that when it comes to the industrial side of the economy, that a lot of the inflation that we're seeing has begun to dissipate. That's going to be interrupted by Asian, uh, the, how the coronavirus impacts manufacturing in Asia. We are a globalized supply chain. I think we're all very aware of that. But that particular source of inflation, I do see is dissipating. Where the Federal Reserve has a bigger challenge is again in the Biden administration executive ordering a 25% increase effectively in, in, in food assistance. That's going to keep your prices at the grocery store higher than they would otherwise be, especially in the United States, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And then there is what's happened, especially in rentals and in rental inflation. And so you're seeing, despite the fact that, that we're seeing finally these evictions come through the pipeline, they were only allowed to begin November the 1st. The, the eviction moratorium ended September the 30th, but landlords were obligated to give at least a 30-day grace period. And then a lot yeah. of landlords, you know, for, for good reasons, didn't want to you know, evict people right before Christmas. So this first quarter, we're going to be finally seeing a lot of this rental supply come, come online. But by the same token, if you're a landlord and you were 
you were not being paid rent for a long period of time, you're going to make sure that whoever signs that next lease is signing it for a big enough increase that you're going to be able to cover yourself if the law ever goes crazy. Sorry, I was going to throw a really bad word out there. If the law ever goes really crazy again and makes it to where the rule of law goes away in terms from the perspective of a landlord. So I think rental inflation is problematic. I think I think housing inflation can be very sticky. We ended the year with 26% of all new and existing home sales going to investors. Investors are playing with other people's money. We have more private equity uh, dry powder, so to speak. That's capital that's been raised to be deployed in commercial real estate and in residential real estate than we've ever had in the history of mankind. It's pushing $300 billion. And again, these private equity investors are playing with other people's money. So they can be price agnostic for longer than you would imagine. And that's why we've seen the flip side of the increase in investor purchases in residential. And that's that we saw in 2020, 81% of homes purchased was for the primary user. I'm buying the house to live in with my family. That dropped down to 74% in 2021. That's a dramatic shift downward. And that, that space has been filled in by investors who have priced individual home buyers out of the market. One would like to think that you could flip a switch and say, okay, investors go away. Let's make the housing market more organic to where it's just serving end users. But that's not going to happen quickly with as much unused capital as these investors have to deploy in 2022, something that will keep housing house price inflation higher than it would be otherwise, especially given they're now building entire neighborhoods to rent out as single family renters. So there's a new player in town and it's big. And that's a type of inflation that the Fed has a very hard time containing. And it's also household's largest line item. So when it comes to things like food inflation, housing rental inflation, um, I think the Federal Reserve is going to have a more difficult time defending itself and saying we can't raise interest rates into this unless the economy slams into a much slower growth regime. There's a term for that. It's called stagflation. Neither of you were alive when it existed, but it's a boogeyman for all central bankers because there's nothing they can do when inflation is rising and growth is slowing. Tough, tough, tough. So when somebody asks you, hey, Danielle, do you think the real estate market's going to crash? What do you say? Yeah, because I think they say that, but... Do you think there's a correction, slowdown? Do you think there's more inventory? But like you just said, there's this new buyer in town that really wasn't there. And they're, they're making up a lot of purchases, like you just said, and, it, and they have a lot of money. They do. And you know, we're also going to see a similar effect on the commercial side. What we've seen in retail these last few years, that's going to finally trickle into a lot of extend and pretend, extending and pretending in the office sector. You have so many big office buildings that have been constructed in recent times. We used to talk two years ago about crane counts nationwide and which city had the most cranes that were up. And, you know, down the line, if you're looking at one that leads to another that leads to another is all these huge multifamily uh, buildings that have been, up, been put up in urban centers that require luxury rental rates because otherwise their internal rate of return is, is going to get smoked. So it's difficult to talk about residential real estate because investors have crowded in without also touching on commercial real estate and the fact that we're starting to see a lot of pain in that arena. Yeah. Do you think most of the pain is going to be commercial office? 
I think the next place that you're, it's going to be the most apparent is commercial office. And I don't necessarily think it's because, you know, a Gen Zer is at home eating avocado toast and refusing to come into the office. I think that, I think that automation among U.S. firms has been heavily automated. You talked about McDonald's uh, saying, we'll pay you $20 an hour. That same McDonald's 12, 18 months later from now, I can guarantee you that whoever used to make the French fries is going to be replaced by Flippy. And that's actually a name. (laughs) Flippy makes makes, uh, French fries 23 hours a day. One hour it goes down for cleaning. Behind Flippy is its buddy who's flipping hamburgers. And at the front of that uh, White Castle is, is a kiosk taking orders instead of an individual. So that's a very uh, d- that's a very distinct example. But at the highest end of that, we've had artificial intelligence kick in, and we've also had a very quiet level of outsourcing. So paralegals who used to be in law offices, surrounded by you know by book after book after book, you know that entire law library is now a piece of big data on a chip. And so you've got somebody in in Mumbai or another country who speaks perfect English and can do the work of that paralegal for a fraction of the costs. So McKinsey has done a lot of good work on what's happened in a post-pandemic world and determined that prior to COVID, between now and between prior to COVID and 2030, about a third of American workers would be made irrelevant by technological advances. That number's moved up to 40%. So if you're asking me which is the next to fall, I think a lot of unoccupied office buildings are going to be victims. I've read these cute stories about offices being refunctioned, you know, repurposed into into first hotels. I stayed in one. It was awkward because the corners were strange. It was it was just a strange configuration. (laughs) Now they're making you know, office buildings and, you know, Moody's has identified a thousand of these big structures that are still in pretty good shape that could be repurposed as, as, as high rise apartment buildings in urban centers. I'm like, cause they need company. Right. So it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I, I think that we, we may have seen some of the worst for retail, but that the next chip to fall is, is going to indeed be office. Yeah, you're right. We are, are, are already starting to see the kiosks and all of the, the things. Um, uh, we were at dinner with a friend who's in uh, biotech last week, too, which was interesting. And she was saying that part of the issue with the job market was the fact that. When, what she when, saw. Yeah, what she, from what she saw was that when COVID hit, Trump wasn't renewing the visas for anybody. So all these like, you know, foreign workers all went back home and they're still being paid to sit at home right now. So why would any of them come back to the U.S.? which then also kind of flowed into these restaurants, losing servers, not having enough staff, because now they're getting paid better to go work somewhere else where they're not working nights and weekends. And so it's this kind of a wild shift. Um, And that was the first time I'd ever heard it. It was like, wow, light bulb moment. Um, She sees it firsthand. She has a lot of people come in. She runs an equity. And she's like, Kenny, there's 600,000 people that went back home. Nobody talked about the people at restaurants like, cool, I'll just take that level of management job. They're like, yeah, we'll take you. You're good enough. We need somebody. You know, at, at, at the same time to add to that, we've had that many individuals in the United States pass away because of COVID. And a, yeah. a major loss to the workforce is that, you know, in, in a post financial crisis after 2009 or so, one of the steadiest growing cohorts of workers and one of the hardest working cohorts were people that were age 55 and above. 
they, they still don't know what avocado toast is. So uh, <laughs> they worked really hard and they were, they were reliable. They didn't call in sick. They were raised in prior generations when that just didn't happen. And so we've lost two sources of workers and, you know, we've, among the, among the younger workers, to your point, Crystal, we've had individual, not all of these kids that were getting stimulus checks were in their parents' basement following Dave, whatever the hell his last name is. Um, thank you. And, and, and day trading, waiting until they could start, you know, playing with sports books again. A lot of them went online and took courses and repurposed themselves and reskilled themselves. And now they're able to work for an IT company and they've been able to move up the food chain and they don't have to work nights and weekends, as you say. So, you know, it's a big problem. And separately, we know that 1.5 million spouses have fallen out of the workforce thanks to the child tax credit being paid in cash. When you add that to, say, food stamps for, again, let's let, take the example of a, four, a family with four kids, that, that would have been me years ago. That $2,200 per month, that was plenty enough to justify between two income makers, one of the spouses dropping out of the job, of the job market. That's an unintended consequence of, of fiscal largesse. And one of the reasons why people like Tester, Cinema, and Manchin are saying, you know what, we've got to step back and look holistically at what the total of the fiscal stimulus has done, because we've actually lost economically uh, viable workers. Uh, because we're giving people too much money, even though we, we we know that we can reopen schools and reopen them safely. So there have been a, there's been a lot of bleed out of the workforce that has not been replenished, that's made it that much more difficult for employers. And again, I'll remind you that the worst kind of, kind of inflation for the Fed to combat is wage inflation. Yeah, I, I agree. So the next, uh, just a little change here. I wanted to get your perspective on digital currency. Obviously, huge topic. Um, China, as we know, has completely banned kind of crypto. They're supposedly creating their um, cryptocurrency, which I think it's coming and blockchain and all that. And um, I do watch a lot of stuff on this. I'm a big fan of Real Vision. I know you know, Rao. Um, so what is your, what is your opinion on um, digital currency? And do you think that's really going to happen here as soon as people really think with, with the U S so I think that the renomination of, of Jerome Powell instead of Lael Brainerd is going to slow that process. The reason China, which recently introduced its own digital currency on an app with only a billion users uh, the, the reason China is so dead set on rolling out its own digital currency is so that it can monitor the purchases and more closely monitor its populace. The reason many in the United States are so leery of digital currencies is because they don't want the government to have the ability to monitor what the citizens are doing. And there's concern that sometimes political parties change and political winds turn, and all of a sudden you've got somebody like AOC running the entire country, and then you do have a weapon of mass destruction that is the exact opposite of the American way where you can indeed spy effectively on your citizens. So I think the digi digital currencies are, are going to be in different ways for different countries. I, I push back on the idea of, of a crypto type of currency being a store of value. And this is where I show my age. 
because stores of values don't whip from 60 to 40,000. It just doesn't happen that way. Uh, it takes a long time for the store of value to be degraded by the Federal Reserve. God love it. So <laughs> uh, until I see otherwise, it really is to me an asset class to which, you know, if, if you're young, have exposure to the asset class. But I do think that the international regulatory body has yet to come together. And I think it will be international in nature because cryptos are international, they're global in nature. So RSEC hasn't even been able to figure out, you know, they're still on Bitcoin. They haven't even moved down to the rest of the alphabet, basically, of other cryptos. So uh, un until the SEC figures it out and then coordinates with other parallel global entities, and we see what regulation is going to be in this arena. I think it's very difficult for anybody to make determinations as to what the future is ultimately going to hold in the crypto space. But I, I can't tell you this much, the technology is awesome. And that's something that's never going to go away. And I think the, that the application of the technology is something that is going to spread further and further and be part of your children's regular life when they're older, such that, you know, they don't have to carry a wallet around anymore. They, they, they you know, their eyeballs will be able to do transactions. I, I think that, that the path that we've started down is, is fabulous for what's to come for future generations. And that can never be taken back. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Who, who do you follow or what do you listen to on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to kind of get your intel? Uh, I, I try my best to read as much as I can, and I stop uh, when it comes to opinion pieces. So I, I try to be, on Twitter, I call myself a data purist. So we produce our own independent research, and to the extent that I can, unless it's somebody who I know is you know, highly respectful, highly respectable. And if, if I'm speaking to somebody like Charlie Plosser, who was like my boss, Richard Fisher, he really pushed back against unconventional, unconventional monetary policy or a William White or probably other people you've never heard of. But when people I deeply respect uh, put papers out or speak in public and, and they've been independent thinkers themselves and they don't kind of move with the direction of, you know, the Dow Jones industrials was up today. It was down today. You know, life is good. Life is bad. I, I tend to keep all of my bubble vision on mute because a lot of that is really for people who are, it, it's like sports. They're just trying to watch the next play occur, but data don't lie. And the direction, especially trends in data don't lie. That's what we follow for our clients. And that's, so I, I try and read whether it's Bloomberg, the wall street journal, the financial times business insider. I try and follow them all to the extent that I can. And I follow the economic calendar, not just here in the United States, but outside of the United States. I like it. What do you think the average person can do in just your opinion in this environment, whether it's get more educated, um, turn off Netflix, you know, um, make sure they have more meetings with their financial advisor because things are changing at rapid paces. I think I feel like the last two years really was just money flowing and nobody's really paying attention. And the next few years is going to be like, wow, I got to really start paying attention because it's going to be a different kind of seesaw or whatever you want to call it. Right. So I think people are going to, what would you recommend? So I think when it comes to the idea of financial advisors, I, I'm going to tread very lightly here. <laughs> um, 
there's a lot of unithinking in that community. There's not as much original thought as we would like. Uh, they don't have their CNBCs or Bloomberg's or Fox businesses on mute. They've got them full volume on. And there, there has tended to be in the financial community, in the investing community, and, and especially among U.S. investors through their 401ks, most of whom are only given target date funds as options that act as really passive flows that constantly rebalance depending on what their age is, such that individuals really have no control over their, their, their financial fate. So I, I tend to say that the best thing people can do is, is to go and, and educate yourself to the extent that you can. Go on YouTube channels. I'm not touting my own horn. There are plenty of free YouTube, other free YouTube channels. Go on them and listen to, to what you can. Everything that is out there, that, that so many things that are out there that are, that are of value are free. And the more you can learn on your own, the better off you're going to be. If, if you see something, especially when it comes to the commitment of a lifetime, if, if, a home, and you're, you know, you've got spreadsheets all set out and you're, and you're like, can I squeeze, squeeze, squeeze into this? Just, just burn it, take them and burn them or delete them off your machine because decisions like that should never be made to where, you know, as long as nothing goes wrong in the next five years of my life, then I can afford to, to take this step. Don't ever go there. Always be a little bit more cautious than you otherwise and build up your cash cushion because you never, ever know when you're going to need that for a rainy day. You know, 75% of American families headed into COVID didn't have a penny of savings. That's an, that's an astonishing statistic. Astonishing. So, you know, being prepared, I mean, Ina Garten used to, you know, she, she had a, she probably still has a cooking show on TV. She always said, be prepared, be prepared and be prepared when you're getting ready for a dinner party to have guests over, just prepare everything in advance. I look at, at your financial well-being in the same way. Just be prepared, be as prepared as you possibly can be and be more prudent in your decision-making when it comes to those big ticket item purchases. You don't have to, just because the Ford commercial you know, or the GM commercial has the, the puppy running out of the sand followed by the big truck jumping out of, the, out of the snow followed by the big truck jumping out of the snow, that doesn't mean that you need to go get a $600 car payment because it's cool and you, you want to you drive the nicest, latest truck. So these are... These are very commonsensical answers that I'm giving, but a lot of people don't abide by this, especially millennials, because they're like, home prices are so high, I'm never going to be able to afford one to begin with. So why even bother trying? Don't look at it that way, because even residential real estate does go in cycles. And investors might not always be the ones running these markets if they burn the people who gave them money. So cycles do turn, things do change, stay prudent, raise your cash levels. I like it. Uh, a couple more questions. What is the, what's the biggest takeaway or cause you get to interview, we've got to interview a lot of cool people too, like yourselves, but you get to interview a lot of fascinating people, which I think are fascinating. Um, and I know, you know, them on camera, off camera, what's probably one of your biggest takeaways of all these people you get to interview and be around where you'd be able to share to people, which is a huge takeaway. They might not know. So what I've learned over the years really are two things. One is don't fight the flow. And when, it, when we're talking about the flow, we're talking about passive investor flows, Federal Reserve liquidity flows, fiscal inflows, share buyback flows. Don't fight the flows because they're bigger than you are. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in the thick of things. So, so if you're 40 years old, you don't have to have, you know, 60% in the stock market if you feel like it's really over, overvalued. Only do what, what you feel is appropriate for your risk tolerance. Ask yourself all the time, how much of this can I afford to lose? Ask that question every single time you get a financial statement that you see that you've had a huge increase in your balance. You're like, okay, I'm good with this. This is great. How much of this can I afford to lose? Always rebalance. And then the other thing that I've learned is that, that debt does matter. And at some point, whether you're talking about corporate America or Uncle Sam and, and the U.S. government and it's the debt that it has taken on, at some point that debt will matter. And every marginal dollar of debt that is incurred, whether you're talking about the United States, Europe, Japan, China, every marginal dollar of debt that is incurred gets you less bang for your buck in terms of economic output at the other end. And that's something that keeps economies where they're constantly in need of the next injection, of the next layer of stimulus. And eventually, you know, this is how Rome fell, and you can go through every other, every other sovereign entity in world history that's fallen since, but this is how empires fall. Two more questions. It's January 2022. We're doing another interview. Maybe we will. Uh, <laughs> What do you, what do you, how does the world look in your eyes? Sorry, January, 2023. Sorry. I got the 2023 part. I, I, I imputed yeah. it. Um, so, you know, <laughs> a year from now, I think that we're still going to be talking about, about China's economy, but we'll be through the third Congress. We'll know if the leader of China gets an unprecedented third term. That's never happened at the 20th uh, People's National Congress, which will happen late fall. Of, of 2022, that's critical because the, the stimulus that China is going to put into the world economy and the domestic in its own domestic economy in 2022, it's going to be buzzy. It's going to be like, wow, look, look what's happening. All he's trying to do is cover his backside and make sure that he gets that third term. After that happens, I think that China is going to, by design, ratchet down its level of growth so that it can look towards being a viable contender in the longest term as opposed to constantly juicing its economy as the United States has done. And I think a year from now, we'll also be talking about how different policies going to be coming out of the midterms as a new crop of, of senators and congressmen and congresswomen are sworn in and what the implications are going to be for US fiscal policy that's run off the rails in what we know will be an election that, that possibly and probably has the Senate and the House changing hands and finally, there are a lot of vacant seats that are open on the Federal Reserve. How a more hawkish voting uh, rotation. And this year we have had, as of this coming January meeting, uh, this year we have had voters rotate onto the Federal Open Market Committee, which decides Fed policy. They're much more hawkish. They're much more inclined to tighten than their predecessors were in 2021, who no longer have a vote. So we'll be looking back in the rearview mirror and saying, well, what was the effect of these hawks on Fed policy in 2022? Did they over tighten? Did they not tighten enough? So there are, there are three huge global events really that are occurring in 2022 that we'll be paying very, very close attention to. The US midterms are going to be global in import. What happens in China is going to be global in import. And what Fed policy does in 2022 is going to be global in, 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 in import because what happens at the Fed goes everywhere around the world. 
I, I agree. Where is the best place for people to find you, learn more about you? Uh, so come to quillintelligence.com. Uh, I'm blatantly advertised behind me, have been since COVID hit. But come to quillintelligence.com. Look at a few samples of the research that we put out every single day. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, please do so at Demartino Booth. So a lot of people say who follow me, you know, that's why bother with going and getting a, a, a degree in economics. I, I learned what I can learn from you every day for free. If you haven't subscribed to me on YouTube, go there as well. So you're more than welcome. I agree with that statement. Um, last last uh, question we ask every guest. Uh, what's your definition of generational wealth? My definition of generational wealth is the level of financial independence conveyed from one generation to the next, such that what is passed down uh, can be preserved. So conveying financial independence to your children is the absolute best way to ensure that the wealth is maintained and sustained. I like that answer. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I've always wanted to interview you, so I'm glad I got to ask all these questions so people that I know can now discover you. And so you'll probably have more viewers, but um, appreciate you coming on all the time. And honestly, I wrote a lot of notes. I usually don't write that many notes. So... <laughs> That's always a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope we can do this again. Um, take care and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you both and happy new year. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>